0: If I was in charge, dangerous phrase, if I was in charge, if I was in charge of the book of Jonah, of course, it's God breathed. But why would you end it in chapter four? I mean, if you were going to end this, look at chapter three, verse 10 again, the first verse that Jerry Baker, our elder, read for us. I mean, what a perfect place this would have been to end the book of Jonah. Jonah. To this point, we've seen Jonah, the wayward prophet, has repented. He's found the mercy of God. He's been spit up by the fish. He's gone into the city. He's given the eight word command, the the, the statement to repent for 40 days and you will be destroyed. He gives the word of the Lord to the people. And the people themselves have repented. We had the sailors who come to find the mercy of God and their lives are changed. And and now Nineveh, from the king to the least of the people, from the greatest to even the cattle, they repent. And we read in the final verse of chapter 3 that God had forgiven them, shown them this great mercy. What a great spot that would have been to end the book. But God's Word doesn't finish in chapter 3, does it, beloved? It goes on through chapter 4. And now we see the disgruntled prophet of God. It ends in a way in which Jonah doesn't even agree with the Lord. He simply hears the Word of the Lord. In our lives, we're forced to ask this question. When we say things like, if I was in charge, as you look at your life and you look at the lives and the happenings of the world, If you were in charge, how would things be different? The idea being, how would you have done it better? That's very dangerous when we look at God. Jonah is burdened and feels as though his perspective is greater than God's perspective. That God's decision to show mercy to the Ninevites, Jonah would have done it differently. God's decision to give and to take away comforting shade Jonah would have done it differently. So, beloved, as we read this text together and we expound on it, we pray, here's the danger, that we can read this and we can shake our head and say, Jonah, come on. I mean, are you kidding me? You're acting like a toddler. But we slow down and we ask the Spirit of God to expose in our own hearts where every one of us in our own unique context has this feeling of, God, if I was in charge. And we ask the Lord to craft us and to humble us and to break our hearts and to be a people who, in this central idea this morning, will choose to trust God's perspective over my limited perspective. Let's note first in verses 10 through 4:4 that we're charged as we look at the life of Jonah in this final chapter that we have no right to become embittered at God's mercy. We have no right to become embittered at God's mercy. From sustaining the wicked longer than we desire to, to forgiving the wicked who have harmed us. When we come to Scripture, there's a difficulty in the book of Jonah because none of the Ninevites have ever done anything to any of us. I feel like I'm safe to say that. The Ninevites, we read the book of Nahum, they're wiped out later by the Babylonians. So if some of you are like 2,500 years old, I don't know that. It's possible I'm misspeaking, but... It's easy to look at Jonah, this Israelite, and say, how, how dare you question God's decision to show mercy? After all, you're an Israelite. You're a, a person that was a stiff-necked person the Lord had blessed and brought up as a people for His own possession. And Jonah, you've also received mercy. Do you not remember the whole giant fish thing? You were in the whale, the well and you prayed to God for mercy? And He gave it to you in abundance and brought you up out of the fish? And now you begrudge what God has done now it says that he's so angry what does he do he's so broken and angered by what has happened he says oh Lord please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live how dare Jonah say such a thing don't you feel like that in reading that how Jonah who are you to say such a thing well the Ninevites I know it's a family service so I'm going to share a couple things. But the Ninevites were a people that were, if you go to the British Museum, there's exhibits there of artifacts and things that have been preserved through the centuries that depict a portion of the barbarism of the Assyrian people, the capital city of the Ninevites of Nineveh. That they would go when they would conquer a village or a, a city, besides child sacrifice components that would take place, they would come and they would tear the men that they spared, they would tear their tongues out from the root so that they obviously could not speak and it would humiliate the people. Other men that they did not let live, they would fillet them and take their skin and nail it to the walls as a reminder of the Assyrian powers. It was personal between Israel and Assyria. We know the Assyrians came and ultimately took off the northern kingdom called Israel. The southern kingdom Judah was preserved, but the northern kingdom was taken off into captivity. That's who these people are to Jonah. It is personal. It is personal. So when we speak of the mercy of God, and why, could, why would Jonah have a problem with God showing mercy or delaying judgment at the very least? All we need to do is slow down for a moment and consider our own lives. People who have sinned against us. Sinned against your family. Your children. And we begin to quickly empathize with Jonah. How could God show mercy to someone like that. And by God's grace, as our hearts are renewed and our minds are being renewed, hearts begin to shift to understand and to be reminded. When we talk about God, man, Christ's response, every week we hear the Gospel message and we're reminded. Why? Because my heart hardens so quickly that I will want mercy for myself and judgment for you. You can watch the media and you can see these things and you can be stirred up in anger and make a person the enemy. Rather than the mission field that God has divinely appointed for us to love and to care for, and to pursue with the good news of Christ crucified, our hope of glory, the good foundation for our life. So look at all the way that Jonah prays. Look at verses two through four. Look at how me centered Jonah has become in his grief. He looks at God's decision to bring about mercy upon the repentant Ninevites, and he's broken, he's heartache, he has heartache. Look what he says, Look at the, let's count the me's and eyes together. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please Take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He's a man who's lost all perspective. And how does the Lord respond? A merciful God, steadfast, faithful, covenant faithful God. Look at how gracious he is. Do you do well to be angry? If you would give me grace and give me six more weeks to re-preach Jonah, I would call it seven words. Do you do well to be angry? What a reflection point in our hearts. What a key question and key verse to recall as we pray to the Lord, as we reflect upon week, week after week. Lord, is there a part of my heart that is angry? We think of anger, we think of two components of anger. There is at least righteous anger and there's selfish anger. Righteous anger is the things that we're angry at that God is clearly angry at. It's righteous, it's good. And Ephesians 4 speaks about this. And your anger, do not sin. So, so there's, a, there's an understanding that we should be angered at the things that God is angered at. But then there's selfish anger that says, it didn't work out in the timing I wanted. This isn't the script I would have written. I would have done this differently. And sometimes the two begin to gray together in our lives and our hearts. And yet, look how patient and kind the Lord is in His interaction with Jonah. How loving our God is. As a point of application for you this morning, if you're wrestling with God showing mercy and forgiveness to others, and God's command for you to be, as a believer, one that shows grace and mercy to others, and you're at this sticking point. We look at how God can handle it with Jonah. Don't you think God can handle it with you and me? If you're burdened, give your burdens and your angers to the Lord. Don't simply talk to others about how life hasn't worked out the way that we desired it to. Take it to the Lord. Don't simply talk about how the world seems to be falling apart and, and everything seems out of control. Take it to the Lord. Take it to the Lord. He's sovereign, just as He was, as Jonah said, over the sea and over the land. So when we see disaster, or disaster being played up all over the place, let us take it to the Lord. He can handle it. Amen? He can handle it. And second, look at how merciful God is in His response. Jonah has no right in his limited perspective to question God in His perfect, infinite perspective. Now remember, as good Bible students, we know that God does not learn. He does not advance, increase in knowledge. He doesn't increase His perspective and mature. So when the Scriptures use things as God saw Nineveh and saw the repentance, it's using language for us to help to understand as time-bound creatures that God honored their sensitivity to His Word and showed them mercy. God doesn't progress as we do, so as we consider our perspectives, we trust the Lord is, is indeed working all things for good to the counsel of those that love Him in Christ. He's faithful, isn't He? Every trial that befalls us is never a wasted hurt. He is indeed that good. So we have no right to become embittered at God's mercy, but verse 5-9 through nine I think gets more personal. Look at verse 5-9. through nine. We note, secondly, that we have no right to become embittered when he gives and takes away. We have no right to become embittered when he gives and takes away. Jonah has lost all perspective. This is for the second time he attempts to resign. It's hard for a prophet to resign. He asked again, look at verse 9, look what he asked the Lord. He said, I've already done what you've called me to do. I've already gone. I've already said what you told me to say. Those eight words are summarized. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Jonah is in full bore grief mode, isn't he? The slightest positive makes him, as the text tells us, incredibly of good spirit. And the slightest plant that he's only known for one day's shade, the second it goes away, he is exceedingly in despair. When grief hits and when bitterness begins to fill our hearts more and more, we begin to lose perspective. Jonah is a prophet of God. He knows the Lord. And yet he is being tossed back and forth by every wave and emotion. How much do we as believers in Christ need one another to help keep us tethered? Who among us could not in 2021 find ourselves being waved back and forth, not even in Ephesians 4 by false teachings and way of man that might cause us to go to and fro, but in grief in the circumstances of life by bitterness, either because of God showing mercy or God giving and plucking and pruning out of our lives could lead us to a position of being so overwhelmed and losing so much perspective that we, like Jonah, would say, it's better, God, for you to take my life than to leave me here and give me mission. God's perspective is better. For if that was truly better, would Jonah be there to voice his displeasure? No. Neither is it for every one of us to to, to live and to dwell and to have our being. We know the Lord and we want to rest in the good purposes and plans and timing of God. This is what Jonah does himself. Jonah is so hopeful. He's a hopeful man. We don't think of Jonah as hopeful in chapter 4, but he's hopeful. He's hopeful that God heard his prayer. God is hopeful, he's hopeful, Jonah's hopeful that God will stop showing mercy to the Ninevites and will change his mind and rain down fire and brimstone like on Sodom. That is his hope. How do we know that? Because he leaves the city, he goes east of the city, and he builds a booth, this little, like a lean-to, this little temporary shelter. He doesn't plan to stay long, just long enough to get a good view, hoping that maybe the Lord will change his mind and wipe out the Ninevites. Unfortunately for Jonah, fortunately for the Ninevites, God does not answer His prayer affirmatively. But this is not unusual, is it? We know as believers in Christ, we know that God is just and a good judge, and Jesus Christ will indeed judge the living and the dead perfectly. Perfectly. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus' disciples, James and John, come along, And they look at this Samaritan town that will not welcome Jesus in. And do you know what they say? They look at them and they say to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? They didn't like the Samaritans either. How dare they treat the Messiah like this? Lord, should we ask that fire comes down and destroys the city? Do you know what Jesus says? He rebukes them. He rebukes them. That's not our job to call down fire. It's our job to be messengers of reconciliation, of mercy and grace in Christ, the good news and hope that we can have in the Lord. to all who will believe we have a perfect Savior in Jesus Christ. He's now demonstrating what it is that He is the God over the sea and God over the land. So look what the Lord sends. This is probably the least remarkable miracle. if I can say that. I, don't know if, I feel uncomfortable saying that. I'm taking that back. This is a miracle. It is remarkable. But in verse, look down here in the verse of the plant. Look at how gracious and a good teacher our Lord is. Jonah experiences this, but the Lord's teaching us by His Word, just as He did Israel, that would read this and, and become aware of even their own components of inconsistencies when it comes to the mercy of God. Now, the Lord, in verse 6, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. So we're talking about a plant that grew up in one day, big enough to give him shade. Why did God send it? Oh, he's gracious. Look what the Lord did. Why? To save Jonah from his discomfort. So what was Jonah's state? He gets a plant. He has a good meal. His team wins. What is it? He's exceedingly glad. Verse 7. The wind came up the next day. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. He wasn't sad that it was gone. He wasn't aware that it was even gone. He didn't even stay close enough attention to the plant to know that it had withered until it didn't impact him the way he wanted it to impact him. For the sun came, and look what God appointed as well. He appointed, now he appointed a plant, he appointed a worm, he appointed a... Scorching east wind. Do you remember where it said Jonah went? Where did Jonah go? Do you remember where he went? In relation to Nineveh. Where did he go? East. And where did God send that wind? On that wicked hot Sunday? Boom! He sent the wind from the east. The city couldn't protect him and shield him. The wind came right for him. Assyria would serve a greater purpose in Israel's history. They would protect Israel from the Babylonian empire. Once the city was gone, once the Ninevites were begun, once the Assyrians were conquered, the Babylonians God would use to bring His judgment upon Israel and Judah and lead them off into captivity. God knows exactly where Jonah is, whether he's in the depths of the ocean, whether he's at the bottom near the weeds, or whether he's east of the city. The Lord sends this wind and it brings him to a point of breaking him. The Lord gives the plant and the Lord takes it away. You give and take away. For Jonah, my heart will choose to say, Take my life. We compare this to the book of Job. We've referenced Job four or five times at this point. We can't help but reference Job with Jonah. Now, Job is much longer than Jonah, but Job, as you remember, Satan is roaming. We see in Job chapter one Satan is roaming and he sees. This righteous servant, or the Lord identifies for him His righteous servant Job. And Satan says, he's only obedient to you because you've given him so much. His family, his wealth, his land. You've given him all this. And the Lord, like a fence, sets it around him of what he will permit Satan to do and to touch. And later, he'll allow him to touch his body and bring him incredibly painful sores. But listen in Job 1.20-21. At that first massive heartache of allowing Satan to bring down this large building that kills Jonah's children. Then Job, um, Job's children, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Children that are in the room. This is God's charge that He's given your parents. This is God's charge that He's given the elders of this church and the pastors of this church. And we're to disciple you and train you and show you who Jesus is. And our prayer for you is that you will come to love Jesus and trust Him and trust His Word so that through all the seasons of life when He gives and takes away you for God's glory like the church in 1 Peter and 2 Peter spread out through Turkey that you might be able to say blessed is the name of the Lord like Job does. And it's one of the blessings of being a part of a multi-generational church and getting to know bigger people, and there's not many smaller people than children here, but there's the reality that we're able to see what? You think about being a part of a multi-generational church and what it means you're able to see of giving and taking away. Next week we'll see a number of families that have been given children. We celebrate in that. And you're with a local church family long enough, we will see the the unimaginable heartache of people who lose children. We'll see students come to this campus excited to get a career and walk in that career. And we'll be here long enough to see people lose jobs that they've spent decades growing a skill set in. You give and take away. Naked I came, naked I leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's discipleship. The call of following and trusting Jesus in all things. His perspective truly is greater than ours. So let us be busy at the process of trusting the Lord and making disciples. Amen? This is the goodness we have in our God. This is what we see Jonah struggling in. But in all these things, as we come to the final two verses, we realize and we remember this truth that God loves us. He loves others and His creation better than I do. And as every one of us would say that together, we could say, He loves us, He loves others, and He loves His creation better than we do. Next week, we're going to begin Psalm 23. Three weeks in Psalm 23 together, looking at my shepherd, who collectively we've been calling this series Our Shepherd, The Good Shepherd. Jonah's perspective is confusing because he knows his Shepherd. But his eyes are so put upon his circumstances that he's not looking at his shepherd. As we walk in that series, we see this picture of verse 10 and 11 very well. The Lord says to him this teaching moment now. Talk about the ultimate illustration. Jonah, you pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. You see kind of the contrast of Jonah's prayer? I said this would happen. I asked for this. And you see what the Lord says to Jonah? It's the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, for which came into being in a night. And it perished in a night. This is, again, this is ultimate miracle grow. It's good. And he says in verse 11, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? Most would argue that can't tell the left from the right. He's speaking about small children. There's at least 120,000 persons, the Lord says, that are little children that can't yet discern the left from the right. So the city might be approaching a million. Three quarters of a million. Who knows exactly? It's a gigantic, great city. And the Lord says, I chose to show mercy upon them. These people that I know intimately and perfectly. That I sustain. And I choose to honor the repentance and response at my word. And sustain them longer. Now we know the book of Nahum will come the day of judgment for Nineveh and they will harden their hearts against the word of the Lord and they will be judged in totality. But God gives him a perspective and a reminder of God's perspective versus Jonah's perspective. As believers in Christ, there's few things sweeter that we can do in love for one another to help each other in seasons of giving and taking, of remembering that his perspective is worth our trust. Amen? Amen. His perspective is worth our trust. Now, this book ends in a very peculiar way. And also, much cattle. I love that. And also, much cattle. Would you look in your Bibles to chapter 3, verse 8? If we forget the, the edict that the king gives, the last verses make little sense. The last verse. Verse. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Remember, the king is humbled and repentant. All the people are believing in the Word of God and they're repentant. And in verse 8, he gives these commands. And among them in verse 8 is, but let man and beast and cattle be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. How good is our God that not only in His sustaining the cattle? Did He show such mercy upon Nineveh that their economy didn't even get hurt? He showed such mercy upon them that the very component, the fact that He sustains the cattle. Remember what Jesus says to His disciples in comparison to how He cares for the birds of the field? Jonah reveals for us at the end, if God cares that much for the cattle that will be slaughtered and eaten, And He sustains them. How much more does God care for you? How much more can we trust the the God who is cognizant and kind and remembering the cattle? That your burdens are not too great to bring them to the Lord today. He's not too busy. It's not below Him. God who loves you and loves others loves even his creation. Let us trust his perspective and thank God truly that we are not in charge. Amen. Jonah reminds us of these things as we come to our next steps. Though having a perfect understanding of God's command, this prophet's perspective is highly distorted. So as a point of application, I would ask you, would you consider what it would look like for you to build friendships that are mutually devoted to the Word of God more in 2021? So if you're a a, a man, do you have men in your life who are devoted to you, but that devotion is centrally also around the Word of God? So that if someone's in 2021 and you find yourself, like Jonah, completely losing perspective, that they would love you enough to come around you Grieve with you, but be there to help tether you to the Word of God, to trust His perspective over yours. And likewise, for every woman in the room and every child, be devoted to the Word. So do I have multiple people in my life that will give me godly counsel if I lose perspective in the coming months? This relates secondly. Specifically, how am I growing in my affections for the Lord and His Word? A God who loves us. How are we growing in our affections for Him and for His Word? That when we're in the position of a friend needing counsel, that we would be able to love them enough to give them the hard word of the truth and the steadfastness of God's Word. So as an example, I want you to imagine that you're one of Jonah's friends. and You happen to, for some reason, be walking east of Eden at this time. And as you're walking along, you see Jonah in this little booth, this little shack that he's built. And you're like, Jonah, what are you doing, man? What's going on? And He catches you up. He gives you the first part of chapter 3. Can you believe God's shown mercy to these people? you know what they've done to our great-grandfathers? Do you know what they've longed to do to us as a people? Look what God has done to them. He's shown them mercy. Not even taking their livestock. Would you trust God's Word enough to give them God's Word With gentleness and respect, but not caving on the truth of God's word as you minister the word of God to them. So pray, Lord, would you grow my affection so when that time comes, when you give me that opportunity in the coming weeks and months, I'll be ready and faithful to love my friend by loving them with your word. Third, do I have any bitterness in my heart from not understanding his perspective? And I ask to you, would you consider confessing that to the Lord this morning? There's few better ways and times to do that than the Sunday, the last Sunday of the month, that we observe the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is a gift that God has given His bride. All across the world, there are congregations gathering to observe the Lord's Supper together in all kinds of different contexts. And yet, faithfully, we are those who have been forgiven of sin and come to life in Christ. Now as we read in Meredith's testimony and heard in Meredith's testimony a moment ago, that the Lord's Supper is only for believers, those that have repented and placed their faith and trust in Christ. But if you're a believer in the Lord, we invite you to partake of this with us as a church family at this time. One of the things that the Supper does for us is it continually softens our heart. So if we, come, if we came into the room this morning with pride in our heart, that the the supper reminds us of how costly our sin indeed is and was. That nobody earned their way to the table. But all of us on our own were but dead in sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, we're reminded of what Christ has done for us. That God would be pleased to crush Him. That by His wounds, we are healed. Jesus defeated death and rose again bodily and ascended to heaven. And we're reminded as we partake of the Lord's Supper together that our union with Christ by faith is so intimate as as these physical elements going into our body. We are that united to Christ. And the future promise that as Jesus raised from the grave, we also one day will be put into the earth, but we will... Also be raised up. Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection. That all who are hidden in Christ are secure. He is a good foundation. And we proclaim as a church family the Lord's death until he comes. As a church family, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I want you to look around for a moment before we partake of the Lord's Supper together. And these are a number of your brothers and sisters in Christ of different ages, the different stages, and different seasons of giving and taking away but we have one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one God, and He's good. Is He worthy of our response? Is He worthy of our lives? Amen. As we come into 1 Corinthians, we're reminded of the gratefulness and the greatness of our God, that He unites this congregation Jews and Gentiles coming together, they have made one in Christ. People coming from pagan backgrounds and people coming from the Hebrew backgrounds made one in Christ, one table, one Lord. We as believers in Christ, we've entered into the new covenant made by Christ's blood. So as we take the bread element, Paul says in verse 23, Recounting of the Lord's Supper, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The Old Testament reminds us and shows us the costliness of our sin. And also, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of God's great love for us. In verse 25, In the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper, this Passover meal, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me before we rise to sing together? Oh Lord, we thank you for the privilege that it is to have a steadfast hope to know You with confidence. Lord, we do ask forgiveness of our sins. We thank You for the inheritance that is ours forever in Christ. We thank You that Your love for us is so great and so powerful that You would overcome our sin and death. And Father, You would send the Son who would come fully God, fully man. And that Jesus, you would indeed do perfectly all that was set out before you to do. We thank you for so loving us and caring for us and giving us life. We thank you truly that what Jonah said is exactly true. You are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. God, would you give us the boldness and wisdom to walk forward this week in lives of response to proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, that He will come again one day soon. Let us not be ashamed. Let us proclaim Your glories all the day until You should call us home face to face. We give You glory this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. All God's people sit together. Amen.